0: That's heritageradionetwork.org slash 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you.
1: Restaurants employ over 15 million people nationwide. And two-thirds of all restaurants are independently owned and not part of big chains. Yet, currently, these small businesses are not represented in government relief negotiations. Roar is working to change that by fighting for relief opportunities for all restaurants. Roar is advocating for an eight-point plan in New York State that will allow restaurants to reopen and rehire when the time comes. Dozens of industry leaders have signed onto this plan, like Namwa Tea Parlor, Field Trip, Mamafuku, and many more of your favorites. You can join them at change.org by searching for Roar relief opportunities for all restaurants.
2: Welcome to Feast Your Ears. I'm Harry Rosenblum, and I love to talk with people about what they do and how it influences their personal food stories. This is a show about people, life, and food. If you're just tuning in for the first time, all the previous episodes can be found in the archives at heritageradionetwork.org. I'm thankful for listeners like you, and I'd love it if you'd leave me a review wherever you find this podcast. Today's theme, health and wellness. Health and wellness are buzzwords, but they're also things that are supremely important to us as humans. We are living in a global pandemic. As I read this, it's April 6th, 2020. I've been self-isolating with my family at home for 25 days now. How we stay healthy in this time is of the utmost importance, not just for each of us individually, but as a species. This pandemic will shape the future for all of us. And we can only guess at what it will mean to us, our children, our economy, our livelihoods, and more. While thinking about the big picture, one of the best things we can do right now is to focus on ourselves and our families and our own health. It's hard to overstate how important it is to be healthy now more than ever. As our hospitals get overwhelmed, the last thing you want is to end up in one, or to be taking resources away from others who have COVID-19 and other diseases. We can look to lots of healthy foods and wild foods to help us stay healthy. I've talked a lot about the value of real food and probiotics on this show before, but it's only more recently that I've started to look into the woods and the sea for foods I can forage. These are natural resources and need to be respected, studied and explored. I spoke with Maureen Johnson recently about her foraging and health. She's one of a number of very reliable and excellent resources in the natural wild food and medicine realm. Check out her Instagram for excellent information at food forage and fodder.
3: My name is Maureen Johnson, or Maureen Gordon. I'm actually in the process of changing my name over. My social media is on Maureen Gordon, and I live in Durham, Connecticut, and I I actually have a real business as well, but um, I recently started a new business called Food Forage and Fodder through Instagram, uh, spun off my personal account. And I just see that there's a big need uh, for stepping back uh, to reconnect with the land and uh, to to better our health. That's kind of where the reason why I spun it off. And um, so, and I've cooked for many. I used to cook for the homeless in uh, the city of New Haven for uh, close to six years, and um, I really looked. Uh, at the homeless through a whole different lens and it really gave me a a big idea of really looking at the chronic illnesses of America as well as the homeless in front of us and of course friends with multiple chronic diseases as well and really just saw a need of uh, stepping back from the grocery stores and the supermarkets and really connecting with the outdoors and improving our health even in small ways sure and that's uh, really where I started it so
2: Yeah, I think, I mean, there's been such a huge uh, kind of, I don't know, movement, awakening, however you want to describe it, of people kind of, you know, not, I don't know, I I believe that we shouldn't completely eschew modern medicine. I think there's a lot of value to modern medicine. Um, Absolutely. But at the same time, I think it's valuable for people to understand, especially in places like we are in the Northeast, that there are a lot of wild plants uh, wild mushrooms, wild edible, uh, you know, sea creatures, things like that, that we can have access right. to that are in fact really good for you, both from a nutritional standpoint. Um, if you're foraging right. mushrooms to eat, uh, or from a medicinal standpoint, like the, the things that you're doing. I mean, I, you know, I follow you on Instagram and we've gone out foraging together and recently right. you had a post about Japanese knotweed, which growing right. up as a kid always grew next to my family's summer home in Maine, and we called it bamboo. And it was like yeah. this scourge. I mean, we hated it. And so every summer, my mother would pay us like, you know, a penny, a stalk or something to cut it down. Yeah, and we would go and we would cut it down. And then the next year it would come back and it would always seem like there was more of it. Right. And it's incredibly invasive, but it turns out to actually be a valuable medicinal plant. And it and it is, in fact, edible, which is, you know, I find it interesting that I never knew that growing up. I mean, everybody always talked about it. It grew on everybody's lawn. It was in the way. And no one ever talked about the fact that you could eat it.
3: Right. Exactly. You're, you're, you, like many others, um, think very much the same way. It's, a uh, husky, invasive. As a matter of fact, some states, if you have it growing on your property, you can't even sell your house. Oh, wow. So, um, and there, are, there have been highways built through plots of it, and they still can't eradicate it. It takes a very, very small piece, less than an inch piece of the root, of the stem, and it will quickly, uh, and it runs through a rhizome under the ground. So when you cut it, right, you're, so you're, you're cutting the energy from the plant itself above the ground it makes it spread worse underneath the ground right. Right. Um, even, even gliophosphate which is a cancer, yeah. cancerous compound doesn't even permeate it as bad either I mean you literally have to lift it completely out burn it in order to kill it
2: <laughs> yeah I mean eventually what I ended up doing on a piece of that land in Maine is one spring I was there when it was just starting to produce shoots and I thought you know what I'm just going to dig it up Yeah, and and I've gone after it took about four years of going after every tiny teeny little sprout that appeared. Right, and still because there's so much of it in the area and in the town and on neighboring properties, it still comes back a little bit. But I managed to eradicate uh, a large portion of it. Had I realized at the time that it was medicinally valuable and that it had all of these, you know, uh, health and immune support properties, I would have, of course, saved all of those roots and made them into tincture.
3: Right. It is. What what people don't know, even though it's a terrible invasive, um, I look at it with a different viewpoint as well. And it is, the, the whole plant is actually entirely edible. Obviously it's not edible in some parts of the season of its growing season, but the reality is the stems when they first pop up are edible. The flowers are big, big, uh, beneficial uh, pollinators mm. like bees and other insects that pollinate our plants and our food system. Um, it's a great pollinating um, benefactor. Uh, the roots are highly medicinal, um, and you can find thousands of scholarly reports. Um, and I posted some of my Instagram, just some that I thought were key because of its antiviral components. Um, that it has been tested clinically against the uh, replication of viruses. And I think that's important right now, especially where we are. Um, sure. I've been on it for four years. I take it daily for four years. My dogs are on it because my uh, my Leo, who's a who's a um off the streets of Miami dogs, and he got a uh, bit in suburbia. At a dog park, actually, he had 16 ticks, and we pulled off of him, and within 24 hours, he could no longer walk. He was paralyzed in months. We had to carry him to his food. We had to carry him outside, up and down the stairs, and this dog was really ill. He had a fever, so um, I immediately put him on Japanese knotweed, and I also make uh, 15 medicinal mushrooms that I forage here in the Northeast as well, which is an immunity blend and um put him on uh two days two times a day now this dog is fully recovered he did not go to the vet and he i did not put him on any antibiotics um and i'm not saying that antibiotics aren't good antibiotics do have their place um and i think they're important and i i never recommend people to uh skirt it but um i've read such great statistics and clinical studies on Japanese knotweed alone being used to treat people with severe cases of Lyme disease, that it's been added to their regime. And so within uh, within a very short, short days, his fever went down. He started to drag himself around a little bit. So I knew it was working, and I monitored him um, extremely close, and he recovered 100%. Wow. He had no residual effects. And he still had no residual uh, And that was two years ago, two summers ago nearly. So um, I, I was amazed. So I've also read clinical studies that it could actually be preventive against Lyme disease. So uh, immediately, um, prior to that, I was already on it. And I've pulled so many ticks because I'm constantly in the woods. Right. Uh, and my significant other in the same household uh, got it twice within a short amount of time. And the second time that he was on it, we actually put him on Japanese knotweed um, full-time strength. We actually doubled his strength. And same thing, he kicked it. So I definitely believe now he's on a regime as well, just like the rest of us. My dogs are on it to keep the line, and we've all had ticks pulled off of us since, and none of us have had any issues with line. I'm not mm-hmm. saying it's a cure-all, sure. but potentially it could be. And I can only... Right i mean the account of my own personal story and my animals and the people I love that have blind in the past. So.
2: Yeah. I mean, I, I think you hit on something there that I that I firmly kind of believe and try to you know explain to people that in in modern medicine, I think there's a feeling of there's a problem and there's a solution and it's very black and white. And I right. think in traditional medicine or in, you know, eating more healthier and foraging or however you want to kind of package that, um, there is a thing about just keeping your body healthy in general. And I think there's a lot more to it than we really understand. And it's not black and white. I mean, having written Vinegar Revival, people ask me all the time, you know, should I be drinking apple cider vinegar every day? Is it going to cure gout? Is it going to cure uh, GI problems? All these things. And I say, listen, I'm not a physician. All I can tell you is from anecdotal personal evidence, which is that I consume a lot of vinegar and I don't get sick very often. And feel good and my bowels are good. And you know, all, all of these things where I can't tell you definitively that if you take one ounce of apple cider vinegar every morning, it's gonna do X, Y, or Z. Because the body is right. far too complicated. There's all you know. Depends right. on what you're eating. It depends on your environment. Are you allergic? Do you you know? Do you have dust mites? Do you go out in the sun? Do you not go out in the sun? I mean, there's all these different things. But
3: yeah, we are built individually. Yeah,
2: right. Exactly. <laughs> we need <to> remember that. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, um, but that there are these things which are in many cases uh, good for you. Uh, in many cases, they. And, you know, it's not like antibiotics, right? Like you can't be on antibiotics forever, right? You can't take antibiotics prophylactically because they're meant to do a very specific thing, but you can take a Japanese knotweed tincture every day and your body may not need some of the things that are in there one week and it might need them the next. But if it is something that we know is not going to be detrimental in the dosage, then you can take these things and have them all the time and have them every day. And, you know, then it could prevent things like Lyme disease.
3: Right. I mean, let me just preface this. I think as a society as a whole, we've, come, we've become accustomed to take, um, and I'm going to try down this a little bit uh, lightly is that we take whatever comes from a medical profession of any sort as full face value. Right. Yeah. Um, and and we do that without questioning without researching anything that the doctor hands a script over for we don't question it now i think the american health system is a great health system is the best in the world and i i believe that that if you get in the car accident and you need to go to the er your chances are very good for survival right however and the reason why I kind of, I kind of walked lightly on this is that I don't think our healthcare is good in preventative. Mm. This is where I think we fail um, to really, our doctors have 10 minutes with us. They are, they don't know what's going on in our life. They don't know what our health is other than looking at a piece of paper or an electronic medical record. And that has led them to not be on the preventative front end. And there's a reason for that too, because there's a lot of big pharma and the doctors are paid well and they get lots of stuff and and they want you on many pills. So, and I think that a lot of these pills that a lot of us are on do more harm to our entire GI system that cause other problems in our body where we get to the point where, and I can, I'll use my grandmother as an example. She was on 30 pills by the time she hit in her 80s and she was not well. I heard, I mean, she had literally chronic diarrhea for four straight years and she lived with my aunt who was a nurse from Vietnam and still a nurse. And the thing is, is that it was just more pills, more pills, more pills. And she would come to my home. And I was like, what do you want, Graham, right? And I would, and she'd say, I have this diarrhea, I can't get rid of it. And I would have a UTI, a urinary tract infection, constantly, she said. And you know what I did immediately is I would put her on a higher probiotic, uh, you know, natural yogurt that I could find the most bacteria in. I put her on, like, granola for breakfast for a good solid week. I gave her cranberry juice and and natural cranberry juice with no sugar and um, that has fruit juice to be And and I can tell you within two weeks, the diarrhea stopped and the UTI stopped. Hmm. This is food. Like this is food because it's closest to the ground that we can possibly find the less processed. And she got off her UTI. She got off her, uh, you know, her anti-diarrheal drugs, you know, over the counter stuff. So this said to me that she's on so many meds that they have destroyed her gut flora. Yeah. Um, and I think this is where most people are. I think most people, I mean, I know statistically, uh, and this is probably an old study, believe it or not, I think it's 15 years old now, but at the time, 48% of us had chronic illnesses. We spent $500 billion to treat just those chronic illnesses. That, if you look at the cost conversion of what we pay to what we're getting in healthcare, I don't think we're getting our money worth. Yeah. And this is kind of where my point is: is that I think we just kind of need to step back a little bit, and how do we eat preventively? How do how do we have food, healthy food, the least processed food, the most whole foods, um, correct a lot of this stuff? Absolutely.
4: Right?
3: So I, I think this is where we fail as a healthcare system in keeping many things at bay because of the amount of drugs that most of us or a lot of us are on or we are picking, you know, chips and processed meats and we're going down the frozen aisle and we're, we're picking out, you know, stuff for lean cuisine meals just because they're calories we do. And this is the stuff that is not going to keep us healthy.
2: Yeah. I mean, imagine if we took even a portion of that money that gets spent on health care and spent it on real food direct to producers and farmers. I mean, the strength of the economy, the health of the people, you know, it would be a whole different world.
3: Right. And and here's the thing. Like, there's not just one thing that has to change. This is actually, I believe, it's self-advocating. And that's kind of where I stepped back years ago. I was really sick with a staph infection, invasive staph infection. This was an antibiotic resistance. Um, I didn't know that's what I had. I actually thought I had Lyme because I've had Lyme twice. It felt very similar. I had serious brain fog. Um, I was extremely fatigued. I couldn't get out of bed. I really had to have all my bank accounts transferred to my daughter because I could not function. And this went on from February into May. And I ended up, I ended up having lesions that I could that were closing, but not completely. Then they'd reopen again. Hmm. I had a high fever for three straight days of 103.5. I literally could not move, and I I even said to my daughter, if I can't break this thing on the fourth day, you're gonna have to bring me to the ER. And it finally did break to 99. So I knew my body was fighting it. I could feel it, like I would have a couple good days, and then I would be suffering a few other days. So I finally uh, went to my multi-infectious disease. She's a great woman. And um she looked at me and she said, You have invasive staff and I can't believe you're standing in front of me mm-hmm. <laughs> She literally said that. She said, invasive staff puts people in the hospital on IV for at least a week. She goes, I am I am astounded. She goes, Whatever you're doing, obviously your body is fighting it. So I'm immune compromised because I'm type 1 diabetic. So I was like, this is good. That means my body's immunity was doing what it should. Like our bodies are built to do that, however, if they're healthy. So I had been on uh, my mushroom tincture already at that point. I wasn't on Japanese knotweed at that point. So I started to research and she did say, I'm gonna put you on a week's worth of two antibiotics. She said for just a week, just to clean up the rest of this and get your lesions to like finally heal up because I couldn't get them to close completely. Mm. So, and I still had swelling around it and everything. So she put me on them and within, by the end, I swear, by the end of the fifth day on these, I had everything back. The lesions completely opened up. I had every symptom of it come back in full force. And I thought, holy mackerel, these antibiotics actually made, are stripping my body of my own immunity. Right which is what they do. Even though I had probiotics and yogurt, I'm really good about taking that stuff with any antibiotic, even if it's natural antibiotics. And I thought, holy mackerel, like this thing is bad. So I ended up researching and I looked up antivirals and I looked up antibacterial and I looked up anti staph and I actually created a tincture between three key plants and I took it for 10 days and applied it to... Lesions for 10 days, twice a day, with a heating pad and a gauze pad soaked with this uh, solution, which was ghost pipes, which is monotropa uniflora. It was Japanese knotweed because it it runs through the cardiovascular system and it actually permeates the skin, as well as ghost pipes. And then the third one is berberine, which is from another invasive barberry plant. It Mm. grows everywhere. So these three and thirds, equal thirds, I applied within. 36 hours, my lesions completely closed up and I was sold. I I said, this is crazy. I received antibiotics that should have helped. They didn't help for whatever reason that staph infection was resistant. Um, And then I've been clean of staph since. And that was four years ago. So I, I've treated others with MRSA. I've treated others with Psy infections, which is another form of staph uh, of the eye and others of infection of um, invasive staph as well. Now, and I don't mess around, right? So I give myself 24 hours, and I tell patients that if this doesn't start to improve within 24 hours, that's how quickly this stuff works, then you need to go to the ER. Because I'm not willing to, obviously, and I'm not a doctor, I'm trained in herbals because I've worked with them for 40-something years. But the reality is, is modern medicine is good when you desperately need it, yeah. so I, I'm not, trying to tell people don't go to the doctors don't go to the emergency room but here's something you can try you'll see symptoms improve within 24 hours you don't see any symptoms improve and it worsens and you get your butt right to the you go to the ER right away you go to your doctor right away but I I just think it proves that we have powerful medicines here in New England and we have powerful food that act just the same and we have low toxicity to other cells unlike other things can be toxic
1: During this time, it's more important than ever to support our friends and neighbors in the restaurant industry. Restaurant Workers Community Foundation has set up a national COVID 19 Crisis Relief Fund. The money they raise will provide direct relief to individual restaurant workers, support other nonprofits serving restaurant workers in crisis and offer zero-interest loans for restaurants to get back up and running. Visit restaurantworkerscf.org to donate today. And if you need a little extra motivation, you can DM your $20 donation to RWCF's co-founder, John DeBerry, on Twitter, and he'll give you directions for making a signature quarantine cocktail. Donate now at restaurantworkerscf.org.
2: So I want to talk a little bit about, I mean, you've been doing this for a very long time. There are a lot of people now that we're so connected with things like social media. um, You know, I want to talk about how people should, I guess, research their sources, or if you have any thoughts on um, best practices in terms of listening to your source. I mean, you know, I want People to become interested in this. And, you know, I became interested in this. And I've, you know, in the past five years started to do quite a bit of foraging. I do tons of research. I've been collecting all kinds of books. Um, right. But, you know, there are a lot of people who are looking at Instagram and say, oh, cool, that plant looks delicious. Or I saw this thing on Instagram that somebody posted. I'm going to go out and do it. And, you know, sometimes that stuff you kind of have to take with a grain of salt or at least. Uh, Double-check sources. I mean, there was a, a well-known story last year. There was a book by an Instagram phenom homesteader that recommended some really dangerous practices around mushrooms and plants, and ultimately was pulled off the shelves because of it.
3: Oh wow! Yeah, uh, my first rule of thumb, and I think many people I take chefs out as um, private to, I basically give them a fire hose effect, yeah. <laughs> but. Yeah, their heads just rolling by the time they come out of the woods with me, or from the ocean for me. But, um, but I I preface every single uh, when we go out, we talk about wilds and um, what I always tell people and warn people that everybody's body is different, mm-hmm. everybody's immune immunity is different. We are not the same people, and I am one of those people that is highly sensitive, not only to the environment to loads of antibiotics and um, and I do have reactions with stuff. So I use my own experience because I am heightened by that and, um, and I watch out for my own self too. So I have a vested interest in it and I eat my own dog food when it comes to telling people how they should approach eating things from the wild or creating medicines and taking them from the wild. Is that you always do a small, small taste. If you're eating wild, you only eat a very small taste, and you wait 24 hours.
4: Mm-hmm.
3: So that uh, put mushrooms aside for a minute. Sure, but any wild plants, things like that, because um, your body may react differently than my body. And I always tell people, no matter what it is, even if you have eaten it before, you'll find that there. Are, you'll eat. I'll use as an example wild garlic mustard. You're probably not going to get sick from that. Like, most people won't. But, still, I would always, because if you start with the rules from the start, then you're not going to run into problems later on. Yep. So, mushrooms is a whole nother thing. Yeah. When I beginners approach me and they say, what's edible, Maureen? Mm-hmm. I'll say, listen, here's where you need to start. You start with just polypores. Because we really don't have any polypores that will kill you. Sure. Here in the north. They may not taste good. Right. One thing, or
2: and they might be they impossible make, to they chew.
3: chew they but give you yeah, they may give you aches, But you're not going to go to the emergency room and have to have your stomach pumped, yeah. and you're not going to need, you know, milk thistle in order to make you survive. So. So, And I always tell people, like here's the pages you want to look for for the ones that will kill you. Because I think if people are going to go out in the woods and they're going to eat and they're going to forage and they're going to research, and there's loads of research you can do on them, um, I always say be 110% sure of what you're eating, number one. Number two is um, know the poisons. You need to know your poisonous stuff before you put anything in your mouth with regards to mushrooms. You know that you need to be able to identify the ones that will kill you, and we have those here. We have the destroying angel, and we have the angel of death, and those are white mushrooms, and they look a lot like most things. So I tell people to stay away from guild mushrooms from the get-go until you have five good years of of foraging for polypores that are edible or medicinal or that won't kill you, and you're comfortable... Then I'll, you know, then come back to me and I'll tell you how to then research the guild stuff. Once you get into the guild, these are things you don't try in a frying pan, even in a small amount, because some of them will kill you. (laughs) So, so, you know, and there, there's only a small window, you know, people think, oh, I just have a tummy ache, but some of these actually have a loop back within the liver and the kidneys trying to flush it out. And then actually it keeps loop backing into the body it becomes worse and it comes to a point where you cannot, um, you can't survive it. Yeah. So uh, those are some of the warnings that I always tell people. So, and um, I think it's important and I try to tell people that constantly.
2: Yeah. The other thing that I always tell people when I talk about it and, and I am, I have, you know, I have maybe five, maybe 10 years of like foraging. If I start with like the first time I found my or chicken of the woods and, you know, I, Feel like it's as interesting uh, and fun and a you know good mental exercise and practice just to identify stuff. So I mean, what right. I always tell people is like you know I'm fascinated by mushrooms, not just the edible ones. Like there are right. hundreds of varieties and colors and shapes and sizes, and you know I like collecting them and I bring them home and then I look at them and I research them and try and figure out what they are, and then right. I throw them out. You know, yeah. Even if it's something that I think is edible you know the first time i find it i'll say yeah i think that's that or i'll take pictures or i'll send it to people i know who have more experience than i do but very rarely do i bring home a mushroom i've never seen before and look at it unless it's something like a polypore that i haven't collected or a varietal of one of you know a a white chicken of the woods instead of a yellow something like that but you know i bring home mushrooms all the time and identify them and i say oh cool i figured out what this is i'm pretty sure put a little check mark next to it in my book and then I throw it out and then I can come back. And so the next season I might find it again and say, oh, I found this before and now I have a better sense. And then, oh, I saw someone else posted that and I can corroborate that information with someone that I trust and someone that I know and really looking for that information. And I think where we run into problems or where people run into problems is that, you know, historically before, you know, I mean, I think social media is great for lots of things. Don't get me wrong. Yeah, I think, I think it's a great yeah. tool, but I think before there was social media, if I had a question about this stuff, I had to find someone I knew who knew more than I did. Right. And it was someone right. who, you know. And I had to I had to read a book. I had to look at something that you know, in in the mushroom world, something that Gary Linkoff had written, or in the in the in the wild plant world, something that Yule Gibbon had written, or find someone that I knew that had experience with this and say, Hey, I found this thing you know can you help me identify it because i want to know and it was see it was a search for knowledge it was not i want to go out and oh i found all this stuff that i think is edible i'm going to eat it
3: right well and here's the other thing because mushrooms is a big one i mean there's such small cases i mean we probably hear about the one case every couple of years right it is it's blasted on the news but The reality is it's a very, very small case of of toxic poisoning, and it has happened. It's happened where families eat it, and something's gotten mixed into it, or somebody mis-ID'd something. Um, I know there was a family in California where I believe that one person died because they had kind of extenuating circumstances in their immunity, but um, some of them needed liver transplants. So the liver can only, um, can only do so much. And once you get into the 36 hour of a mushroom, that's really toxic. It's extremely hard to correct and undo the damage. It's not damage that can be undone. So, and I'll give you also an example, and you're probably a good example of this is that you collect things and look at them and ID them, which is great. However, I always tell people that you probably shouldn't even touch them. If you can get pictures and document the environment that you found it in, the kinds of hardwood trees, or are they pines or hemlock, you know, it, it's not, it's when you start to look at mushrooms, you have to look at the forest. You have to look at the environment because all of those have a, um, they actually dictate the type of mushroom. Yep. So the, the many ways of identifying like mushrooms is the type of mushroom the environment of the mushroom, the type of trees, the type of ground it's growing out of, the, you know, is it swampland, is the pasture, is it this, is it that, right? So not only that, and then I tell people, once you can start to identify the trees, and then once you can identify the type of environment, then and then you start IDing the mushroom, then you gotta start to do spore tests. Spore test is basically the holy grail. Of finalizing an edible mushroom or not or a toxic one and from that gills uh the way all mushrooms have spores so whether they're a polypore which means that they have pores if you were to tip over any kind of polypore you'll see there's lots of little holes in the bottom those are those are pores and they hold spores and in gill mushrooms they are released within the gills so I always say to people, if you're going to collect mushrooms and just to play around an ID, you should always bag every single kind and never put them all in the same basket because gills, including poison and toxic one release their spores when they get shaken up. You can't necessarily see them, but you will cross contaminate other mushrooms. So you may, maybe you picked a maitake and then you saw this really cool, uh, you know, red cyanide, you know, and yeah. you put it in the same basket. Those spores from that poisonous one will transfer to your edible maitake, sure. and you could become extremely ill and say, "Wow, I only ate with maitake." But the reality is, you could have cross-contaminated. And the reason why I say this is, I had an experience a few years ago of my own. Now, I my, my colors are a they're not a gilled mushroom. They are sure they're actually a bleach and there are many edible beliefs, but there are also beliefs that are not good for you, will make you sick, not really even healthy sick, but one that you want to go to the hospital and have your stomach pump sick. So I've eaten them over years past. I, these are beliefs. There's three kinds, and they cross over. And even, like, highly respected Michael Kuo had put, a, together a, um, put together a paper uh, a white page on the 3 bicolors bi-colors and how difficult it is and how difficult it is for a really good mycologists who just study mushrooms to to uh, disseminate from each species. So Michael Kuo has, he's the mushroomexpert.com. He's probably my biggest go-to for stores, um because he's always up to date. Absolutely. And I find that the books I have are already out of date.
2: No, it's because true. Because the
3: because the, they change the species, they change the family and the subgroups, and I think to stay, if you're going to be someone that's in the woods to eat wild foods, especially mushrooms, um, those are things you do need to keep up with. And I highly recommend his website for anybody that wants to start to do that.
2: I would point um, out though that I, his website, mushroomexpert.com, is yeah. incredible for IDing mushrooms, but he makes yeah. no he he includes no information about edibility on his site.
4: Yeah.
3: Um, yeah, you, you, exactly.
2: you need to cross-reference, but his site is really has the most up-to-date information
3: for ID for sure Yeah, he'll put taste on there Yep um, And that's it, but he, he doesn't, uh, he says the same things I do You know, you better know your stuff 110% yeah. So, but he is a, probably one of the best resources I know, uh, hands down, in terms of website, comparatively even to books so, Absolutely. books are good, books are good, but I think his website is top for that stuff, okay. and a lot of other websites, like the Wisconsin Index is another one that I use, because they have very good pictures from people who find them, and then they're posted. It's not extensive, but I also started that in my beginning years, years, years ago, and he actually points all of his links to his, their mushrooms, to Michael Kuo, right. so, which I think is good. So, the, the information is consistent, but... So uh, just to give you an idea, because I've eaten uh, the red and yellow uh, bicolored bullies, uh, many times I've eaten them. I, we, I, we found them, and we ID'd them correctly, and we ate them. And, I, you know, unfortunately, this is where I kind of failed on my own eating my own dog food and my own rules. And so because I've eaten them before, mm-hmm. I have them. And I probably had an appetizer's worth. And I can tell you, within two hours, I was severely ill. I mean, I like I wanted someone to slice up in my gut. Oh, <laughs> I was begging my significant other to slice me open because I was so ill. And I ended up I've I've never had diarrhea run through my entire GI system and clean me up completely in a short amount of time, under four hours. So I knew that I had eaten something that had either a toxic crossover and the the funny thing is is I know many others in New England that got sick and I think that there was a crossover. Mm. I think there was a toxic crossover that year because all of us have eaten them in the past. All of us are are very very apt at mushrooming, sure, uh, and doing the right thing, right? So, and all of us, some of us had vomiting, some of us were vomiting blood, some of us had both, and there is at least a group of twelve people that I know from here to Maine that had the same problem. Hmm. So, this is why I think it's important for people to, even though they've tried them before, and speaking from, um, speaking from the expertise on that. I still recommend every year that if there's something, uh, especially uh, like bullies and I think especially guild mushrooms, that if there's any toxic crossover and it could be totally environmental, I don't know. It's just that all of us, a big group of us had gotten really sick from these bi bullies. Hmm. So I'm back to, uh, you know, I make sure that I tell people that I try to tell them that story because I think it's critical, you know?
2: Now, you mentioned with mushrooms how important it is to look at your environment. And I want to bring that up when it comes to foraging plants and other things and even seaweeds. When we went out a few weeks ago together, we talked a lot about how, you know, there are places that you can forage seaweeds and places that you can't because of proximity to things like runoff and development and golf courses and things like that. So I just wanted to bring that up for a minute to make sure that people yeah. also, if they're out, you know, I mean, right now, this time of year, people are out looking for ramps, right? Everybody's all hot for ramps because that's the sign yep. of spring in the Northeast. Um, yep. and I noticed you have the secret spot where you got some very early, like a couple <laughs> of weeks ago. Yeah. <laughs> I have yet to find any spots in my part of Rhode Island uh, where I can find them, but I'm on the I'm on the lookout. I've got the Japanese knotweed staked out, but even that up here, and I'm not that far from you, you know, is only right. just starting to produce those little pink buds. I, I don't even have any like taller growth um, yeah. in any of the spots up here for that. But you know, can you talk for a second about how to identify or what things to look out for if you are going to start foraging some of these edible plants?
3: Yeah, I think it's important, and I've had conversations uh, with other foragers because, obviously, I have lots of foragers who follow me, and I follow some that I really, really, truly treasure. And um, and I think we're all in this together, and that includes foraging. So mm-hmm. we have a great community that's built online for that, and I think that's what Instagram is so great for. Um, but there are differences where I've pointed out where I've seen folks harvest Japanese knotweed, and I'll just start with that one first, and then I'll kind of sub, sub that into the rest of the world where we can forage wild foods. Um, you know, Japanese knotweed, to give an example, grows extremely well in really poor, um, really poor soil. And what I mean by poor soil is the more that it's less, um, less hummus, less really good bi- you know, biodiversity nutrients in its soil it doesn't do well in really healthy soil. It actually stays fairly contained. Um, So I always tell people they may see loads of it. I don't recommend that if it's in any areas where there's manufacturing in the past hundred years, that it wasn't a dump site for some places. And I think like in one particular, there is a forager in New York that, you know, raved about eating the shoots coming up out of parks in New York. And I was thinking to myself, I don't know if I would eat anything yeah. coming out of this New York sure. <laughs> in all honesty. And the reason why is Japanese not as an example and many other plants are, are in this um, this category is they will take up toxic metals. They will take up the pollution in the root and which subsequently will be released into its plant. Right. So I think that if you're gonna look for let's stick with woodlands and pastures and open spaces that you kind of know the history a bit of it. And the further into the woods you can get where there's no manufacturing, the better chances that you will do fine. You will be okay. But I think if you're, you know, scouting out edges of preserves made 25 years ago, and it used to be a dump back in the twenties, you know, these are places I would not forage anything from because things do get taken up in the roots. I mean, there's not a lot of hard degree uh, clinical study on it because no one's really looking at that. But as a safety precaution and as my own health, I would not eat anything coming out of the ground somewhere near where there's major manufacturing over the last hundred years. Yep. So so I would say you want to look at food outside. You want to you look for natural preserves, natural land trusts. Like I Google land trusts, and there's a lot of them that are small that a lot of the towns scoop up some of the old farms are even made into land trusts, they are phenomenal. If because a lot of times they didn't really use a whole lot of chemicals on their farms because they would harm their animals. Right. So I think if you think of that cognitively and think, Okay, you know what? This place is right near where they used to make textiles, you know, a hundred years ago. You would not want to be foraging <laughs> for anything in yeah. that area. Sure. So even though it might be observed today, yep. the dirt doesn't change and the roots will go deep enough because some of this stuff does not go away. They have like a half a million years of, of, uh, you know, half life. So, so, and then the same thing kind of transgresses into water. Same thing. So if you have natural ponds that were never dumping zones or they didn't have halfway up the river where they made, you know, copper bells or brass bells for ships and, you know, we're dumping this stuff into the river. Same thing. So, although over the years, a lot of Mother Nature will correct that as long as no one's disrupted it, and I think as Mother Nature corrects that and buries it deeper and deeper, things become, I think areas will become safer and safer. Mm. As long as somebody doesn't take a backhoe and start taking and dredging. Sure. This is where we start to see the problem. So, and then the ocean, the same thing. There are many preserves that do not have street runoff, that do not have any manufacturing Um, along the edges of it and you want to stay away from rivers typically that run to the mouth of the ocean as well because you're the same thing everybody throws stuff into the river because that's where it goes to the ocean (laughs) (laughs) the Connecticut River is one where people throw stuff in whether you like it or not and um, I think that it can be dangerous so I tend to look for preserves that are you know hundreds and hundreds of acres are very far from manufacturing have no street runoff, and if there's street runoff, you just kind of want to either move north of it, so um, and not move south of it. Yeah, um, I think that's important. And the other thing too is, you know, as we what we talked about when we we're out, um, you know, in the ocean and in one of the preserves, it's a thousand acre preserve, is you want good uh, running water. You want waves because that is water that's constantly churned and that's good. If you're in standing water near the mouth of a river, those are, you don't want to eat crustaceans that are there. You want, to, you want to eat crustaceans or seaweed that has crashing waters on it because you'll see that the growth is better. You'll see that more, uh, more aquatic life is better. You'll see, and those are the things that you look for. You look for how much of the biodiversity is in here, how much of it is teeming with life. That tells you that it, the water is really good, and salt water naturally is, um, is antibacterial for the most part. So salt water does many good things to uh, a body, and it's the same thing. You don't want it watered down. You want to keep the saline solution uh, in the water, and you can eat things that are out of cleaner waters.
2: Excellent. Well, I think we could go on for hours and hours with this discussion. Um, but as we as we near uh, the end of our time, I just wanted to ask you a little bit about your grandmother, because as I understand it, she's the one who first started to teach you about these things.
3: Actually, it was my grandparents. Oh. But yes, yeah, I mean, I spent my childhood years from an infant uh, till they sold the house when I was pregnant with my first child. And um, to me, it was home. I moved a lot. Uh, seven times before I hit fourth grade. So I really didn't have a home that I could call home except for my grandparents. And my, my grand, my great grandmother immigrated from France to Dale, which they called the Dale. And um, they, she split her land up and my grandparents built on the property right next to her. So to me, it was home and the Berkshires like very much like Connecticut is very versed in loads of different foods. And my grandfather as a little tyke when I was five, um, that's as far as back as I can remember maybe he did it even earlier right. uh, he would take me out foraging he, we would go up to Cranwall golf course and I think he just took me along to pick golf balls but, <laughs> 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 but along the way along the way to the Cranwall we'd go to the back of the property and we'd walk through the woods we didn't take the road up Walker Street and um, you know it was a hike for a little kid like me and we would pass lots of streams and he and I would pick wild watercress and even though I didn't like it because it was so bitter as a kid but you know I remember picking it and he would tell me how to pick it and you know what it looked like and then we would pick chestnuts you know these little prickly burrs that you know I had to put gloves on and we would pick them and then he showed me how to dry them and then we would pick black walnuts, and I learned um, and Wild Food Love, which is also on Instagram, spotlighted the way you get the shell off. Because I learned it as such a small child to get black walnuts, which are, um, they're a pain. They're a pain to no. clean. Um, they are very tannic, makes your hands black for a month if you do it freehand and that with gloves. And it's hard to get the green shell off. And, you know, I learned the French way. I learned what they do is they put them by the furnace or by a wood stove and you let them dry and they come off in a powder. And, um, you know, it's funny because the nuts were good. My grandmother used to make, you know, black walnut bread. So these are the things that I grew up with. And to me, it was just normal part of life. Um, and then I was blessed to have a mother who did great at preserving and canning. And I grew up around gardens. And she would drag me out into the wild blueberry bushes or, or the uh, wild black cherries. And she would make my favorite black cherry jam. She called it choke cherries, but... I uh, since identified that it's really not choke that she was wrong all this time. <laughs> so I was like, Oh yeah, these are choke cherries. Well they're not <laughs> So But you know, so you, you start to um that's what I grew up with. So it just became an extension of more to know, right? More berries to know and what and we see elderberries right off the bush. And, and you know, I've gotten called out on Instagram that I'm going to kill people. But the reality is they're not super toxic but unless you eat enough of them, right? You mm-hmm. would eat an entire leaf of them. But they're tart, right? Yeah. So I grew up with that, too. So I had my mother that did a lot of preserving and dragged me in the woods as well, my brother in the woods, and my grandparents. And then my grandfather was epic at growing meat. So I'd been surrounded by food. And I just took it a step further. And my mother always said, you've always liked to be in the woods since you're a little girl, and nothing's changed. (laughs) So so I think, you know, I I have a little bit of all these great things that I grew up with that to me is normal, but I realize that people are so disconnected from their food. They don't even really know where their food comes from. So, you know, I I try to... my, My main goal for people... Uh, to teach them is to inspire them to step out their door and to look at what's around them just a little differently, that there is food right out their door and to inspire them to kind of take a walk in the woods and pick some things and research. And, you know, um, I always can take people out. It's a small fee, but, um, you know, I can infuse them with loads of, of information. So I think that's that is my goal is to inspire others to look at food and to look what's around their outside door. Um, and to obviously not, you know, eat anywhere where they drop, uh, any, uh, glyphosate or Roundup or anything like that, because those are things you don't want to eat near. So. Yeah.
2: yeah. I think, I but think that, that's, that's one of the ones that this time of year also always gets me is like all of the ads for Roundup and all of these things that say kills weeds. And then the picture is of dandelion. And dandelion is one of my favorite spring salad greens. And I think it's not a weed, it's dinner.
3: It's food. Yeah. My great grandmother used to send me out with a little pocket knife and told me to go into the leaves and pick the smallest and the most, the first ones that pop up. My mother used to do the same thing. I was always picking dandelions in March and April because that was our first salad. Yeah. That was what we grew up with, you know? So. Well, but thanks. yeah, it's better to just dig it up, you know so. yeah.
2: <laughs> well, thanks, Maureen. Uh, it's been it's been great to talk with you and
3: uh, I appreciate you the opportunity on uh, you know heritage radio as well. Thank you so much.
2: And I really I look forward to getting together to forage in person again, perhaps once this uh, pandemic subsides somewhat.
3: Yes, I would love to yeah
2: and and you know and and as you know, I encourage everyone to to check out uh, Maureen's Instagram. It's food, forage, and fodder. Um, You can learn a great deal by looking at that. And, you know, while you're stuck at home, go for a walk, take a look, look around you, look at the plants and see if you can identify them.
3: Yes, exactly. You know? Step out your door and get some fresh air, which is good for the mental health capacity.
4: Yeah.
3: And uh, and you might find something that's actually edible. And I'm more than willing to help people figure things out and ID them. There's a lot of things I like can ID right off the top. But if there's things I'm unsure of, I certainly will tell you not to eat it. <laughs> so I want I want people to survive. You know, the the more I share, the more I care, the more we save. Especially in light of what's going on in our in our world right now.
2: Thanks for listening to Feast Your Ears today. You can find out more and follow Maureen at Food Forage and Fodder on Instagram, and see all the awesome things she's working on. Great information on mushroom identification can be found at mushroomexpert.com. You can find Feast Your Ears as well as lots of other great shows at heritageradionetwork.org on iTunes, Spotify, Pandora, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Please reach out if you have any questions. You can reach me via email, Harry at Kitchen.com, and you can follow me on Instagram at thefoodballer. Talk to you next week.